Welcome to the Policy at McCombs podcast, a data-driven conversation on the economic issues of today. In this series, we invite guests into our studio to provide a highlight of their work presented during a visit to the University of Texas at Austin. Policy at McCombs is produced by the Center for Enterprise and Policy Analytics at the McCombs School of Business. Our guest today is Brian Kaplan, professor of economics at George Mason University. Brian writes on multiple topics in economics and is the author of some of my favorite books, including The Myth of the Rational Voter and Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids. Brian joins us today to talk about his most recent book, The Case Against Education. Welcome to Policy McCombs, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start with a summary of the argument in the book. Yeah, so what I say is that contrary to the popular view that education raises people's earnings and helps their careers by pouring lots of skills into them, I say a lot of what's going on is just that you're getting certified, you're getting a stamp on your forehead, which makes employers interested in hiring you. Sort of the simplest way that I like to put it is that to a large extent, education isn't really job training. Rather, education is a passport to the real job training, which occurs on the job. So if you want to actually learn how to do much of anything, you have to first spend many years in school studying subjects, most of which will never be used again after the final exam. And then finally, you get a certificate which employers take seriously to give you a chance. And once they let you into this world of work, then you actually learn how to do something. So um, let's clarify this on using some jargons from, from economics on, on, on the discussion here. Um, when you say skills, we're, we're talking economics as about human capital. So human capital yeah, formation. That's, that's right. and, and what you're pointing here in terms of the credential is this idea of signaling. That's right. Uh, runs by, by the numbers that you we were able to summarize in the book and breaking down the, the, the evidence on, on those camps. Sure. So it's a super hard question, and there's no one piece of evidence that I regard as definitive, but I did spend you know, six years just reading and working on this and trying to figure out what seemed like the, like the, the most likely answer. So in the end, what I come down to is out of the genuine causal effect of education on your earnings, about 20% of that represents real skill formation, and the remaining 80%, I say, comes down to the signaling of you know, getting the stamp on your forehead saying, you know, grade A worker or grade B worker or whatever. And when you say the, of the causal effect, you, you're already discounting the ability bias. So yeah, how, yeah. Much, how much of that premium right. of education could be attributed to the ability bias? Right, that's correct. So again, another tough issue, and you know, just, just for readers who uh, haven't heard about it, so you know, like, you know, one way that you could figure out how much does education raise your earnings is just to look at the average earnings of college graduates compared to the average earnings of high school graduates and say the difference is, the, is whatever education causes. But that seems like a heroically optimistic assumption because people who go to college are not randomly selected people. They're generally people who had better test scores, better performance, probably better discipline, and so on. So what I what I say, and what, you know, which is really a standard view, is that you need to make some adjustments before you, you know, to the raw average in order to come up with a credible claim about how much is really caused by the education. So I say a you know, reasonable view is that about 45% of this apparent pattern is just illusion. And so then you're left with 55. But again, it's not that I'm particularly married to that number, but it just seems like the most reasonable thing given all the evidence that I had at the time I wrote the book. So what distinguishes uh, this view from the standard view in labor economics? And what, it, what are you bringing to the discussion that I think is different than what traditional economists would, would look into uh, in, when making their assessment of the value of education? Right. So the big difference is that while you know, all labor and education economists would know about the idea of signaling, for almost all of them, it's just a theoretical idea, which is cute, and you know, it's something you can give some homework problems on, but they don't really take it seriously. And I do take it very seriously. Now, as to why I take it so seriously and they don't, 
I think the main reason is that most economists only want to focus on the effects of education on earnings, on your career. And I want to go and say, well, look, let's go and see what people are actually studying. Let's see what people are actually learning so we can get an idea about how plausible it is that what they're studying and learning really is actually causing them to acquire more job skills. And again, you know, for a lot of economists, they, like they just they say, well, that's not what we do. And since we don't do it, we don't need to worry about it. And I say, well, you know, really, we need if we if if we're not doing it ourselves, then we need to go and heavily read the people that are doing it. And there are fields, you know, educational psychology, especially. And then there's you know, there's also just the field called education, and they do a lot of work on learning and retention and relevance. And I say, when you go and read them, that you realize that. The standard economy, uh, you know, economist view that it's all, at least almost all human capital just really doesn't add up. Just what people are studying is just too different compared to what they would ever do. So a lot of the statements uh, you're making are statements on average that on average mm-hmm. perhaps signaling would, would be responsible for eighty percent of the premium that we see in education. Uh, but are there subgroups or or subsets of students that might benefit differently from the system that we currently have in place? Are there is there any evidence that you can tell us about that? Right. So, I mean, I'd say, you know, the most obvious thing is that the, you know, like, you know, for, for K through 12, like the, you know, the, you know, the literacy and numeracy parts are almost certainly more useful in the labor market than the other stuff, just because you actually use reading, writing, and math on a lot of jobs. And on the other hand, most of the other subjects you're studying, you just will never use. So if you sort of break it down by subject, then I think there's almost no doubt. If you're doing it by major... Uh, in college, then it's, then it's a bit more complicated. I mean, it's very tempting to say that engineering is a higher human capital share, but then you realize, well, they also make a lot more money than uh, than people in other majors. So it might just be that they get a larger total amount of skill, but maybe the share isn't especially great. And again, you know, like why would there even be any doubt? Like, isn't engineering just like a constant skill formation process? And again, the answer is when you really talk to people in allegedly vocational majors, you find that they too waste a lot of time on things that aren't very useful. So my dad's a PhD in engineering and most of what he did in grad school was proofs. And once he's done with the program, he never proved anything again. That's just not what you do for money unless you're a professor. So I mean, my guess is, you know, like, you know, almost certainly there are differences. And my guess is that it does go in the, dire- in the direction that our stereotypes would have a say, like STEM probably has a higher share of human capital than, say, humanities. Although, you know, even there, another good thing to remember is that most STEM majors don't even work in STEM, right? So I think the number is, you know, something like half of engineers, like people with engineering degrees, are currently working in engineering. And about 80% of STEM people don't even work in STEM. They do things like finance. So, you know, they're, they're using some of their math there, but still, most of what you learn in physics, you will not be using on Wall Street. So let me go back to your dad. Surely, I mean, and putting my professor hat also back on here, <laughs> surely by proving theorems, he learned how to learn. He became a better thinker. He became a better learner. Isn't, wouldn't you agree with that? Right. I mean, on the one hand, it's very tempting, and especially for a professor, it's like, well, I mean, I'm magic. So when I teach <laughs> something, everyone requires wonderful skills, even if they don't use exactly the thing that I taught them. But, you know, I say is, you know, this is one of the most Uh, one of the the longest research topics in educational psychology. They've been working on it for over a century. And if you go and read them, they generally are very pessimistic about this idea of learning how to learn and learning how to think. It's just hard to find much evidence that it really occurs. It seems like in the real world, despite professors' wishes, the best case scenario is really the students learn what you teach them. And the idea that there's all of these uh, indirect ripple effects and so on, there's just very little evidence that it actually occurs. You know, I have no doubt that it happens sometimes. It's just that when you go and collect research data, it's so rare that you can't find it there. 
But, you know, but I would say like anytime you actually meet someone who does original research, of course, in some sense, they learned how to think and they're applying that to their job. But or at least, you know, well, at least the minimum, maybe they didn't learn how to think, but they know how to think. Right. It could have. May not be that they were that was literally taught to them, but anyway, so there there are rare individuals where they where they have these remarkable powers of synthesis, but it's so rare that we that we there's just no, like it's just hard for researchers to say much about it. I mean, like, like you know, like what I was mentioning in my talk yesterday, you know, like when I speak to practicing research scientists about things that that are outside of their area of expertise, they very rarely use the scientific method on anything except the exact thing that they work on. So when you go and talk to you know biologists who don't work on nutrition about nutrition and say like you know like experimentally what do we even really know about the effect of nutrition on health you know usually people that that are, even are scientists sort of repeat what they heard on television even though they know that well, wait a second like you know, the stuff you were on television like what does that come from it, you know it comes from a commission that had had no experimental evidence because of course it's really hard to get any experimental evidence on on human nutrition you're not going to go and randomly assign half the people in the country or even or in a study to get bread or not get bread and then see what it does to their health. So it's very speculative ultimately. And like, you know, even, you know, you know, here's the thing is that there's a lot of observational work in the world where you just measure things that actually exist and then try to, you know, it's not experimental, try to use some statistical inference to figure out what's going on. For something like nutrition, we can't even do anything remotely as good as that because we don't even observationally know what people are eating. Like there's no measurement of this. How many people are keeping a diary on what they ate yesterday, much less for the years that you would take? And, and of course, we'd have to go back many decades if you want to measure, say, the effect of nutrition and how long you live. Like, you know, if we started a study on this today, the best study in the world, we still wouldn't have answers for 10 or 20 years. So we don't need to just pick on one set of professors or somebody that you, you talk to. We can look at our system of universities and how we think about changing curricula and make every 10 years, for example, just going through one here at the Macomb School who never once run an experiment to say, okay, what really works to impair oh, yeah. knowledge to our students? Let's try to apply the scientific right. method to figure out how to best do our job, and, and we just don't do it. Right? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, for any one school, you might just say, well, it's just too hard for us to go and run the study ourselves. But yeah, just the fact that there is that it hasn't been done on a large scale by someone else, and then we just go and order the box and open the box up and do, it, do what it says in the box. I mean, there's a lot of things going on here. I mean, first and foremost, even if we had the best evidence in the world, a professor is an artist. You can't tell an artist what to do. He'll, you know, he is entitled by as a matter of the very nature of professoring to enter the room and explore his individuality. Right? So that's the, you know, like the ultimate roadblock is that you know, professors just feel like they're entitled to, be, to do whatever they want. And yeah, of course, as a professor, I love this fact. I mean, this is part of what got me into this thing. It's like, I don't want someone telling me they've looked at the evidence and they know what works. I want to be me. All right. But, you know, so there, so there is that. And yeah, you know, it, it is hard. But yeah, like ultimately, there's just a fundamental irresponsibility to the whole system where people just aren't expected to demonstrate performance. And, and then if anyone asked them, they would get mad about it. And then this gives us this illusion of certainty that like each person knows what's best for them and like like what are the odds that that's true that would be amazing like how does each person figure out the way things are that are best for them like like, like you know like unless of course your only standard is whatever i like is what is best so so you know, you're a university professor. I'm an university professor. Uh, I think I have at least the hope that I could do something to improve this and help our students a little bit better. Uh, have you had any luck 
uh, working with your department or uh, or ideas around Mason or ideas that you have that you know even within the current system that could help us perhaps do a little bit better and and empowering and pouring in skills in our, into our students. Yeah, I mean, I really want to say yes, and you know, like, I can say, well, I get very good teaching evaluations, but really, the, the, yeah, 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 you know, you know, they're they're a great measure of how happy students are in class, I think, or at least a good measure of how happy or how happy the students that bother to show up to fill out the evaluations are, anyway. So there's that. I mean, in terms of you know actually getting people to learn. I mean, I, I feel in my heart like I've, I have uh, very good techniques for highly motivated students. And as for the remaining 80 or 90% of students, I can't honestly say that I think my methods are especially effective in terms of, of teaching. I mean, the area where I would honestly say that I put the most effort into actually getting high levels of learning is I homeschool my older sons. For them, I just know, like, I'm just a lot more attentive to what's going on. And I do actually just try more things and see how, you know, and, and see what works for them. I mean, you know, partly, of course, because they're my kids and I just care about them more than my other students. It's just the truth. Uh, but another thing is, again, they're, they're my, you know, my sons are so motivated that when I come up with something that is a pain in the neck, but it, but it, but it clearly works better, you know, things like having lots of testing with lots of detailed feedback. And this is something where there is a good research literature saying that, you know, first test, you know, test early, test often, and then secondly, give detailed feedback, especially on mistakes, especially on mistakes. So, you know, probably the biggest time sink in my homeschooling is I read what they write very carefully, and then I go over it line by line with my red pen and, you know, and when you talk about it and then do it again and again and again. Um, would I be willing to do this for my regular students if they were motivated? If they were motivated, then I would. It would be a lot of work, but if the, if I had the gratitude of the students and appreciation, thank you so much because are you really really working with me to improve? Then I do it. But to go and get you know, students where almost none of them want to do that work, and then to still try to say you know, like you're going to come to my office and we're going to work with you for an hour every week for a bunch of students who don't even really care, you know, like that's the kind of thing I just don't feel like doing and. And, you know, I, I, I can understand why you wouldn't either, Carlos. <laughs> right, right. But, but like, okay, how technology, isn't that something that could help us with this? I mean, I, I, I we see things like Khan Academy, right, that allows me to practice different things and get feedback on the go. And, and are there things that are successful in doing that and somehow helping us in that mission at the higher education level? I haven't seen it. Right. I haven't tried it. Yeah, no. yeah. So in terms of actual research evidence, I think most technology in the classroom is just another fad where someone gets really excited about it and as to what the evidence actually is. Um, I haven't looked into it in great detail. My understanding is that, you know, for example, you know, people love PowerPoint I mean, they love slideshows, but I think there's actually evidence that actually that, it, that it's at least not better than just doing it the old way and maybe even worse because it's just too easy. Right. And again, you know, a lot of a lot of, of what educational psychologists will say about learning is that if someone. You know, a lot of what educational uh, psychologists will say about learning is that if someone is too relaxed and comfortable, they don't learn much because they're just kicking back, right? So you want people to be like moderately challenged at least just to get their attention. And then, you know, things like slideshows probably just, you know, just put them in this relaxed frame of mind better to make them go and you know, squint their eyebrows a bit and, and pay attention a bit. And, you know, so, so there's that. So let's let, before we turn uh, into policy implications associated with your work, uh, let, let me let me close this part of the discussion with uh, I think the, the thought experiment that, that you have. I think that clarifies a lot what what the, the idea of signaling is. Um, I think I'm paraphrasing you here a little bit. So, would you rather have a Princeton education without a degree or a degree without the education? Yeah. Right. So so yeah yeah you know that's you know, and this is a question where 
Even I would say it, I'm not totally sure what the right answer is, but just the fact that you have to think about it shows that my basic point is right. Because I'm not saying that there's no useful skill formation going on at school at all, but I'm saying that a lot of what you learn is not ever going to be useful, except insofar as it puts a stamp on your head and gets you a job. And you know, like a nice contrast with this is if you were stranded on a, stranded on a desert island and I asked you, so which would you rather have, knowledge of boat building or a boat building degree? There would be no question. Well, like, <laughs> like, what good does, not, does a boat building degree do me on an island? Like, 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 that's what a stupid question. Obviously, I want to have the skills, but in the labor market, it's quite different. And again, that's because it's social. So, it like everybody knows that there's some employee at their firm who doesn't really cut it, right? And in fact, I often will ask my students, say, like, out of people you have jobs, raise your hand if there's some employee at your firm that everyone knows is incompetent and almost every hand of every person with a job goes up. So, you know, it's obviously true that you can be incompetent, but as long as society grants you a station, you can enjoy the material benefits of it without actually contributing. And then similarly, I think a lot that's a lot of what's going on with education is that people get degrees that are better than they really are, and they use this to go and get a better position than, than they really deserve. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, in the end, that's all going to bounce out. And I'll say, well, maybe, but it's another empirical question. And, you know, reason to be skeptical is just that it's so common today when a worker is not performing well to basically conspire with the bad employee against their next employer to pretend that everything is great and then shove them off onto somebody else. There's even a word for it in the professional research on termination, or there's also practitioners especially. And, you know, they call it dehiring. Dehiring. It's not firing. We're not saying you're fired, get out of here. We're saying we encourage you to seek better opportunities elsewhere and... If someone calls, we'll talk about how good you are, and that way you'll be somebody else's problem. And by the time they find out, you know, they, they've named the puppy, you know, they know you as a human being, and then a lot of places will be reluctant to get rid of you just because you're a poor performer, some of which is, is based upon freer of lawsuits. But you know, a lot of it is just fundamental humanity of people don't like firing people. Right. So I mean, like, you know, very, you know, like, you know, there's research on how does firing actually work. Again, like a lot of my fellow economists basically just picture the second a firm realizes that they pay you more than you produce, they get rid of you. And that just doesn't seem like the way the real world works. There's a lot of, you know, some firms may be like that, but a lot of firms basically, they just don't like firing people and they may not give you good raises. They may, you know, you know, fire you or lay you off when the next recession hits. But as long as the firm is making money, there's a lot of jobs where, uh, where termination is very rarely occurs. Okay, so now moving to, to, to policy, um, quoting from the book here, you say that the educational social return ranges from mildly below market to dramatically below market. And I think that leads to your main policy implications uh, from, from the work. Run, run us through that. Yeah. So in terms of social return, this is when economists go and try to measure the payoff of education, but not just taking into account the benefits and costs for the student, but taking the benefits and costs for society into account. Now, the key feature of the, sig of the signaling model is that the benefits to the individual of education exceed the benefits to society because in the signaling model, education is a way to get a better job even though your extra skill or your skill is not increased very much. Now, again, why would employers do this? Because the degree certifies your skill. It convinces them that you have the skill. And that is a perfectly good reason to hire a person and pay them more money is that you have been convinced of their skill. It is a profit-maximizing strategy to hire people once they convince you of their skill. It doesn't really matter to the employer about how you actually acquire the skill, whether it happened in school or elsewhere. As long as you've got it and you've convinced them, that's a reason for them to pay you. And for the individual, then, it doesn't matter that much why they're getting the extra money. But from the point of view of society, it matters tremendously because if you 
get a piece of paper that convinces the world of your skill without this actually changing your contribution to society, then essentially this means that your raise is redistributive. You have gotten your raise at the expense of other people because if you didn't learn how to increase the production of mankind in school, then when your salary goes up and mankind's production did not, obviously the only place that your money could have come from is really from other people. Right? So that's why the social return is lower than the selfish return. Now, what can be done about this? Well, one possibility is we could just totally reform the schools so that they teach a lot more skills, right? which is theoretically doable. But I just say that you know, given that the system that we've had has been around in place for so long, given that it's so entrenched, it's just not very realistic to expect it to reform itself significantly. And this is where I say you know, it's a much better approach to simply cut the spending. Right, to cut the spending in a word, austerity, austerity, which I know is a word that is usually used abusively to say, oh, you, this is terrible. It's austerity. But I like the word and I like the idea. I mean, to me, austerity is just common sense. It's just you go to your dad and say, I want 50 bucks. And he says, why? What do you need it for? What are you spending it on? What, did, what happened to the last money? And again, this is not the attitude that people enjoy, but it is a very functional and practical attitude. It is the attitude that avoids wasteful spending, right? It avoids throwing billions of dollars for, uh, away for nothing. And again, I think, you know, from a social point of view, so again, like my, my big proposal for education is just austerity, looking at schools very closely and saying, what do you need that money for? What are you really delivering for it? Right. And again, like, so like someone says, no, no, we, we should improve it say, well, look, improvement would be great, but I just don't trust the system at all because they've been shamelessly wasting so much money for so long. And also when I talk to educators, you know, like they are very much like, you know, professors that I know, like, you know, they have this illusion of, of omniscience where they think that everything they're doing is already great and that people should just bow down to them and say, oh, you are so wonderful. Thank you so much. So, you know, I say that when you're dealing with people like that, the best approach is to say, look, you've wasted my money. I'm not going to give it to you anymore. If you say that you're going to improve, do it. Improve first, and then we will come back and have a conversation about whether or not we're going to go and restore your funding. Uh, so that's, that, that is the big thing that I talk about is just spending less. And again, what is the purpose of this? The purpose of this is to get people to start adult life at an earlier age. So, you know, fact, people used to actually begin their jobs at a much younger age. And this is true not just for jobs that genuinely require many years of training in order to be able to do the job. This is also true for all kinds of jobs where they seem to be no more complicated than they were 70 years ago. So, you know, like, like there are now many jobs, uh, you know, like waiter, right? Or, you know, like even a cashier where a lot of the people with the jobs now have college degrees. And as right. you pointed out, yes. those yes. jobs are easier today than yeah, it yeah, used yes. to be. Yeah, I mean, at least, at least some of them. You know, it's complicated, but yeah, like many of these jobs are easier than they were in the past. Because so of technology. What, yeah, right. because of technology. So why is it that you need a college degree in order to get this job, but your parents or grandparents didn't? Uh, this is called credential inflation. And when people measure it, especially sociologists, the main ones who measure it, they find that there's been enormous credential inflation over the last 70 years. And so like the main reason why people have more education today, it's not that it's really required to do the jobs they have. It's just that it's required to get the jobs. And again, this very much fits with the signaling model where if you want to convince employers you're in the top 25% of the distribution of workers, you need to have credentials that make it look that way, even if the credentials are not really very relevant to the job. So the way that I like to put it is our ideal society should not be one where everyone can go to college easily. It should be one where you can get a good job right out of high school. And we used to have this world. 
We used to have this world. And I say we can have it back because it's not the case that changing technology is the main reason why people spend more time in school. So the main reason why people spend more time in school is because other people are spending more time in school. And if you want to get a good job, you've got to do it too, or else employers are going to throw your application away. So that austerity is the really big implication. It's the one that people that follows most directly out of the argument. And yet it's also the one that people resist most aggressively. But spending more on education yeah, is a bipartisan. Uh, right. It's totally idea, bipartisan. Right? Certainly never cut. Right. Right. As you know, like, like as soon as you say cut, this is, well, no, 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 no. We should definitely shouldn't cut a single dime. It's like, wow, what an amazingly a, a functional political system we have that we should never cut a dime. Right. The voting like, system yeah, was perfectly yeah, yeah, yeah. right in allocating yes. the right <laughs> amount of resources yes. for that activity. Right. <laughs> and again, you know, and for a lot of this stuff, it's it, like, like, you know, like, like, you know I say you know, the key part of the argument for austerity is that when we look at the very poor performance of the system, it's not poor performance because we've only put a small amount of effort in or for a small amount of resources. It's poor performance despite putting in enormous amounts of resources. So foreign language education, which is one of my pet peeves. So in the United States, less than 1% of American adults even claim to have learned to speak a foreign language very well in school. And yet they generally have spent two or three years studying it. So you essentially have almost nothing to show for two or three years. So when, when, when people look at that and say, okay, fine, we haven't done well so far, but we just need to redouble our efforts. Like how many years do we have to, kids have to spend not learning a foreign language? No, no more money. If you want to go and get that money, you need to demonstrate that you can take a bunch of non-fluent people and turn them into people who can at least use the language to a professional degree. And that's what's going to take before you get the money, because otherwise I just don't trust you and no, no sane person would. So do you have any sense how much we spend aggregate and, yeah, yeah. on foreign languages? Uh, foreign languages specifically. Let's see. I think I can do that, actually. It's going to be billions, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so if you basically just figure it's proportional to the amount of time that students are spending on it. So like, you know, basically the normal amount that you would spend in American high school is two years. So that would, you know, the, and then I think normally you'd have about six classes. So let's see. So I think that would be, so you know, so let's see. So basically be about one twelfth of your time in high school would be spent on foreign language. So yes, yeah, so, you know, so like, a, I think like a rough pass would be one twelfth of all spending on high school. Again, like, like you might say you like, you need less in the way of resources for it, but I don't know. You got language labs, stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, I like, I would just start with a 12th as really, really like the best way of thinking about, well, like how much we're really spending on it. Yeah, one of the the my, my complaints about about wasteful. Uh, if, if the story of human capital made sense, well, was as big as 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 uh, some people would claim, uh, wouldn't have lev- let our campus be idle for three months of the year <laughs> or Fridays. We don't have yeah, that many classes on Fridays. It's like, wait a second, we have this amazing yeah, amount of capital yeah, yeah, installed yeah, of course, here, yeah, and we oh, just let it be like you know, idle. summer school. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, that 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 is a great point. And again, it also just goes to how much of education is just based upon we keep doing things the same way they were done 100 years ago. Because you know, so I remember there's actually some, like like some fairly smart person saying it's not true that we have summer vacation because of agriculture. There's some other story, but again, like whatever the story is, it's been going on for a long time. And and, and, if, and, and, if, and if you were finding you know, like the only business I can think of that runs even remotely like this is the hospitality industry. Where you know they know like like you know like there's not going to be skiing skiing at the ski resorts during the during the summer that kind of thing but like like for education it's very hard to explain actually why it's got to be this way. So let's wrap up with uh, just you mentioned briefly um, something about your kids or your experience as a father but uh, for listeners out there thinking about what lessons they can take themselves mm-hmm. in in thinking about their kids' education many and insights that you you gather through your research. Yeah, sure. So I have a whole chapter on a parent's eye view of this literature. So you know, like like you know the main thing is 
forget that you love your kid and just look at your kid the way that someone who didn't know him would look at him. And then if you want to really help your kid rather than feeling a nice person, give your kid the same advice you would give to someone that wasn't related to you who had the same record as your kid. Right. So most obviously for deciding whether or not your kid should go to college, you shouldn't think of it as my kid and whether my kids should go to college. Think of it as, well, what would be a reasonable prediction of how well someone who had the same test scores and academic performance as my kid did? And this is important because most people do not finish college on time. There's a very high non-completion rate. There's a very high rate of just taking more than four years when to, to finish a four-year degree, even if you're a full-time student. And this is highly relevant for whether or not it really is a good idea to go to college because most of the payoff for college comes from graduation. So I'd say is if a reasonable prediction is that your kid would not finish, then it's just not a good investment in your kid to send your kid to college. And instead, you need to find something else that your kid likes and is good at. Many people give a flip out at me and just say, oh, you would never kid you tell your kids not to go to college. And I'll say, yes, I would. I'm, I try to do this. I try to look at my kids like a stranger would look at my kids, you know, a well-informed, thoughtful stranger. And if they're just not, if they just did very poorly throughout high school and had poor test scores, then I know that predicts that they will not do well in college and are not likely to finish. And so it's just not a good use even of their time because, again, like I said, so much of the payoff comes to graduation. So that's probably, you know, the, the biggest piece of advice. I don't, you know, also... I would advise people to see whether their kid is going to do at least a major that has average earnings or higher, right? So, you know, like business major is roughly the average one, right? And then, you know, like, you know, STEM does better, but, you know, like not, you know, like, like when you average in all STEM, it's not as good as you think. Really, like, you know, like the top earning majors, you know, electrical engineering, computer science, mechanical engineering, finance, and then, by the way, economics is usually comes out fifth. Economics, I am an economics professor, so make the, make the adjustment for my credibility here. But I will say, like, you know, like I... I think it is genuinely true economics is the highest paid of all the easy measures. It is one where you make almost as much as an engineer on average for, I have to say, maybe a third or a fourth of the actual work of what electrical, what engineers are putting in. So, you know, that's a really good one. And let's see. So, you know, so it's a big major. Oh, yeah. And then the last piece of very practical advice is unless your kid is going to, you know, like has, is, wants to pursue some very strange uh, you know, occupation, then I'd say that usually your best bet is just to go to the best public university you can get into. So private university usually just, you know, unless they're giving you some massive scholarship or something, usually isn't worth it. Um, you know, like, you know, so there's a lot of economists who have correctly pointed out that if you are a stellar student from a low-income family, then you totally should go to Harvard because Harvard will pay you to go. Right? So this is, this is totally, this is true. It's not relevant for many people. Right. But, um, you know, but anyway, for most for most people that are listening, I would just say that private school is rarely worth it and certainly don't go and pay for some private school that is highly non-selective. Right. So, you know, like paying paying fifty thousand dollars a year for a school that accepts anyone who pays the money. That is almost the definition of madness to me. Brian, thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. At Austin. Great pleasure. Great questions. Thanks a lot.